Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day New York. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for tuning in, everybody. Uh, this should be fun. We have a very interesting guest. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this guest uh, before I reveal his name. So first of all, he is one of two must-follows, according to Fast Company. He's a top 10 voice in marketing, according to LinkedIn. Business Insider said that uh, he's one of 30 people to follow on Twitter. Uh I was astonished to see this morning that he had close to 300,000 followers on LinkedIn. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Mr. Tom Goodwin. It's very good to be here. Thanks for <laughs> inviting me on. All right, Tom. And Tom, your day job is your 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 EVP head of innovation for Zenith Media. Head of innovation. I'm yeah. there to bring change to the industry. Ah, interesting. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what was, what was amazing is um first of all, I discovered uh Tom uh, just on LinkedIn, just sort of looking at posts, and uh, you always had interesting things to say. Yeah, yeah. I'm there to kind of bring about a debate. I think um, I like the viral nature of the platform. Um, it's odd. Sometimes I get published in print media, and you've got no idea what people think about what you do. Uh, on LinkedIn, people will very quickly tell you their opinions on stuff. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to add that you've written for The Guardian, you've written for TechCrunch, you've written for Wired, and you've written for Forbes, among other publications. Yeah. So. It's good to it's it's good to have a voice. It's good to get out there and to spur a debate. Well, I wanted to share one other thing before we get into these topics uh, that we're going to chat about with you. Uh, just in the last four days, I scrolled through your Twitter feed. <laughs> what have I done now? T- just, <laughs> just the last four days. Yeah, these are the topics that you covered, and that's why I think this is going to be fascinating okay. for our conversation. You talked about influencer marketing. Yeah. You talked about digital first video companies. Yeah. You talked about banner ads and customer journeys. And oh, by the way, I want to give some of your quotes because uh, I love the way you frame some <laughs> of these, these things up. You talked about the end of broadcast TV as we know it. You talked about the brand and consumer disconnect, uh, mobile shopping. Uh, you've identified three types of businesses today, the Internet and more. Tom, this is just the last four days. Yeah, I've got quite a lively brain. <laughs> sort of sporadic bits of, of stuff that I put out there to see what happens. Um, so I, hopefully people enjoy the variety. Well, it's really good. I think the other thing that's quite interesting, too, is that you're writing a book as well, right? I am, uh, very reluctantly, actually. Um, and this is not the kind of start of my book promo tour by any means, because uh, I don't really like books that much. Uh, for me, books are, are kind of a fairly sort of antiquated way to almost impart um, a feeling of sort of solidity to ideas by making them really big and long and making sort of books a sort of very physical and sort of heavy business card. Like I've spent most of my life trying to make my thinking very concise. Um, So to kind of, uh, to produce something that's quite so sort of big and old-fashioned is going to be quite hard for me. Um, but I was approached by a few different people to do such a thing, and, and everyone suggested it would be a good idea. Um, so I'm probably the most reluctant writer of a book ever. Um, but I'm enjoying the process so far, like the idea of having a, a kind of long period of time to tell a proper uh, sort of narrative over, I think, will be an interesting challenge for me. And do you have a title for the book yet? Um, I've got a, you know, true to me being a pain, uh, I've got a title, but I'm not too sure if I like it. Um, at the moment, it's called, it's, it's related somewhat to digital Darwinism. 
Um, but I'm now thinking about changing it to something about the idea of kind of new disruption, mm. um, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, Christian Claytonson's obviously got some thinking about disruption that, that most people are using. I don't think it's right. I think it's uh, based on fairly old data and based on a sort of different uh, world. So I have a new theory, which I'm going to be discussing in the book. Well, it's good. Well, there's nothing we like more than disruption here at the <laughs> I know. Disruptor Series <laughs> podcast it, brought it, to you by TBWA, the disruption company, <laughs> which, uh, as you know, is connected to our friend, Mr. Uh, Jean-Marie Drew. Absolutely. The, uh, I've read his book. The Godfather yeah. of Disruption. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, excellent. Well, well, we'll get into that in a second. Perfect. Um, I also love your Twitter description, which I think is probably the most accurate uh, of everything that I know about you and have read about you. And your description says that you are a marketing provocateur slash pain in the neck with good intentions. I, I, I feel comfortable with that. Um, everyone will go around who sort of knows me sort of from social media and assume that I'm this extremely sort of grumpy um, sort of troll-like figure that's just trying to sort of provoke a debate because um, I'm annoying. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to be annoying or irritating, but I'm doing so with good intentions. Um, like, I genuinely think this entire industry is a fantastic industry with amazing people, with extremely lively and brilliant brains. And I think routinely we avoid some of the more interesting topics and we focus on dead-end conversations. Um, so I, I just enjoy the idea of spurring a debate so that I can learn as well. Like, I'm only 38. Like, I've got no right to be more correct on things. I don't know uh, anything compared with lots and lots of people. Um, but I kind of enjoy the platform that I have to put out thoughts so that I can learn, so that collectively we can learn. You know, it sounds quite sort of noble. Um, but I just genuinely think that there's lots of really fascinating things that are happening in the world right now. And it's great to actually really address them, whether it's privacy, whether it's digitization, whether it's self-driving cars, whether it's nonsense predictions from companies that don't seem to know what they're doing. Um, it's just nice to challenge these things. Um, well, I think I think what's quite uh, powerful about you is that uh, while some may see you as a kind of know-it-all, I see you more as a learn-it-all. You know, it's, I, uh, I hope that comes across. Um, I mean, in, in all honesty, I'm, I'm not someone that cares too much about what people think of me personally. Um, I don't know why I, I kind of feel like that. But it's really, really important for me to learn. Uh, and it's really, really important for me to hopefully um, create an environment where other people can learn. And I'm really happy to be wrong. I think, um, if nothing else, one of the great things about the Internet is there is um, just a, a vast human corpus of information out there. Um, and it's wonderful to come up with a theory that people shoot down brilliantly by knowing far, far, far more than me. Um, there's no better feeling than being wrong um, because you learn something. They, I, I get very little comfort out of validation. Um, you know, it's, it's odd on LinkedIn because you see apparently that you know tens of thousands of people are, are reading stuff, and it doesn't enjoy me to have someone commenting saying this is great, Tom. Like I love it. I'd much rather have someone say actually, you know, your theory is completely flawed. This is a scientific paper that was written 30 years ago that shows you that you're an idiot. Because uh, I'll read the paper and I'll, I'll I'll get better as a result. So. Well, by the way, if I, if I want to feel wrong, I just you know uh, that's why I got married. Uh, <laughs> it's on that, demand. Uh, yeah, <laughs> on tap with anyone. <laughs> I love my wife, but uh, she seems to, you know, always be right. <laughs> All right. So up front, we talked a little bit about disruption. And I think what's interesting just in what I know about you and some of our conversations even before the show is that you're kind of disrupting disruption. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. <laughs> that sounds like quite a hard thing to do. Um, I think... Uh 
I think a lot of theories on disruption um, are sort of based on thinking that hasn't been completed. Um, for me, the idea of, of I don't know whether it's a new form of disruption or it's just taking Jean-Marie Drew's thinking and, and sort of applying it to some more modern cases. But it's about this idea of, the, of companies that have succeeded by doing radically different things for the first time. And it's about the idea of companies um, whose first ever explorations or products or services um, have been the best the world has ever known, despite them having no experience in that. Mm. So whether it's something, you know, a really boring example is the Dyson vacuum cleaner, um, which at the time of launch was the world's best ever vacuum cleaner and Dyson's first attempt. Uh, it seems like the Tesla Roadster, um, you know, the, the prob- by some measure, the world's best ever car, Tesla's first ever car. Um, you can look at things like Facebook. You know, Facebook is by far the largest media owner the world has ever known. And it's not set up by, you know, an editor from The New York Times with 35 years of experience in getting eyeballs. It's written by a software engineer who has no experience of media whatsoever. So from from Uber, um, you know, as uncomfortable as it is mentioning his name, you know, Donald Trump's first ever job in politics will be as leader of, of the free world. Like, that's mm. not how these things are supposed to go. Like, you're, you're supposed to sort of rise up through the ranks of sort of campaigning uh, and then 50 years later, you know, as a sort of an old person, you get to become president. Um, so increasingly, we're seeing the fact that a lack of expertise isn't just uh, something that hasn't been a problem. Um, it's actually been the reason for their success to some mm. extent. So that's the kind of theme I'm going to try and explore in the book. Well, interesting, you know, interestingly enough, as you as you go through those examples, what strikes me is speed. Yes. The speed with which yeah. things can happen. I yeah. mean, is it... Because we have all this knowledge, like I, mean, I wrote a piece about this a while ago. That a lot of the things that in the past were very good things for companies to have, like a lot of the kind of quote unquote assets, whether it was size, whether it was experience, whether it was access to capital, whether it was relationships, whether it was a distribution network. Increasingly, that size actually seems to be more of a hindrance than a help. Um, you know, you have companies like Casper or Warby Parker, um, these kind of insurgent-like companies. Again, from you know, more often than not, they're not led by people with years selling mattresses um, behind them. They're they're led by people that are like, what if? You know, shouldn't we just? There's a there's a sort of curiosity there. And then probably, you know, by having very small, nimble teams of people, by bringing on people who are experts as and when they need them. You know, I, I don't think it's great to be a novice when it comes to web design because it's probably going to be quite hard to write code. Um, so it's about finding the sort of right experts at the right time. Um, but I think they've been able to challenge quite a lot of the conventions, which is obviously a big <laughs> TVWA disruption thing, um, and just do things that actually lots of people um, didn't think should happen. I mean, a lot of this actually comes from my... Uh, I spent many years working with Nokia, mm. um, so about 2004 to 2008, mm. uh, worked very, very closely with Nokia and the N-series lines of phones. And we spent years and years in focus groups listening to what people wanted. Um, and in retrospect, they were completely wrong about everything, and we listened to them far too much. So we would try, we, we would have these devices that allowed you to stream video on the go. And you tell people about that and they'd look completely disinterested. Uh, you had the ability to check into places using GPS. Everyone thought that was a horrible idea. Um, so everything from kind of life blogging, as we called it, which is basically Snapchat, um, all the way through to uh, geotagging, which was basically um, a form of Foursquare. Uh, and kind of most notably, uh, we had prototypes of the iPhone with a kind of touch sensitive screen many years before the iPhone came out. And, and you would show these devices to people. 
And they'd say things like, you know, I don't want such a big screen. You know, I don't need that. Mm. Um, I'm worried that my fingerprints were going to get on the screen was a big one. Uh, people would say they would never, ever tolerate the idea of a phone that lasted less than two days of solid battery power. Uh, they were quite expensive, and people just said, look, I don't, I'm not going to buy a phone. Like, I expect to get it for free. Uh, so it's been a very, very strong learning for me in how careful we need to be about how people express the needs they have and about the degree to which technology can really, really bring about change. So uh, I, th I think on this point, because th I think this is what you're saying is fascinating because you, you brought them the future that inevitably would happen, <laughs> yet it was rejected, which I, reminds, <laughs> you know, it, it, it reminds me of that uh, great uh, Henry Ford quote, which yeah. is, you know, yeah, you yeah, ask absolutely. people what they wanted, they yeah. would say we want a faster horse. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually writing a piece about this now, and I can't wait for it to go out, because the, the degree to which people are now doing things that we spent many years and, like, hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing trying to get them to do and was uniformly rejected. And it wasn't just us, like, mobile operators, like Vodafone would have this ad with um, David Beckham um, where he would send a picture of a cup of tea to, to I guess, Victoria Beckham or something, um, you know, as a way to say, I'd like, a cup of tea. Hmm. And everyone thought that was ridiculous. Um, and this idea that... You know, images would become a form of communication was kind of widely laughed at. When the 3G licenses were sort of bid on uh, mm. in the UK and companies paid tens of billions of, of, of pounds or dollars for them, um, everyone thought it was strange because 2G was enough and what could you possibly do and why would you actually take pictures? So as an industry and, and as an entity, we just spent an awful lot of time and effort trying to persuade people to do things they had no interest in doing. And actually when the iPhone came out, um, I think the user experience was such that actually these things became delightful things. Um, so with, with something like the Nokia N95, the act of sending a picture to someone took about 13 button presses. You had to sort of, you know, agree to privacy terms or something before you sent it. And with the iPhone, you kind of just gestured something off off the page. So I guess another thing I learned from that is is often it's not about um, it's not about telling people to behave in a certain way. It's just about enabling people to behave mm. in a certain way and making everything delightful. All right. Well, very good. Very interesting warm up here. I want to get into some of the things that you wrote. Uh, again, I found these on Twitter. Okay in the last four days, and um, <laughs> we're just going to click through them. Because I think what I also love about um, kind of the the Tom Goodwin uh, whirling dervish of ideas <laughs> is that uh, if you just scroll through your stuff, some, your thumb will stop on something. <laughs> You uh, you kind of have a you, you have sort of a buffet of ideas yeah. uh, for your for your brain and thumb. So we're gonna we're gonna go through. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna start with influencer marketing, and okay. I'm, and, I'm, and I and I love I love I love the way you wrote this. So this was your tweet. You said, "I'd say influencer marketing in its current form has about twelve months remaining. A more sustainable model will then develop." Yeah. So tell us about the end of influencer marketing here. <laughs> here in the middle of it. I wasn't prepared for this. I need substance <laughs> that's what here. I, that's what I love about this. <laughs> this is mean. Um, I can actually talk about this for quite a long time. I think. Um, in short, everyone in advertising is always looking uh, for the solution to the problem. You know, as as people's behaviors change and we kind of spend less time watching TV and more time on our phones in particular, um, you know, th there's this theory that people don't trust adverts as much. Um, there's this theory that ad blocking means that people don't see stuff. Um, so every client quite rightly is looking for new things. And I think anything that sort of flashes in, in front of people's eyes um, becomes the sort of the next shiny toy. Um, so a while ago, social media was going to solve all of our problems because all reach was going to be free and abundant and 
you know that didn't quite work out like that um then things like snapchat come along and you know other holding companies will set up specialist units to explore these these things so we have this kind of thing where every time something that shows some hope mm. sort of comes near us we sort of jump on it and think that this is where all of our futures lie um and actually i think that's quite it's not quite as binary as that i think we need to sort of mix up lots and lots of different sort of elements we have kind of a portfolio of consumption no, absolutely yeah i mean and tv ads are great and they're, yeah. they're still going to work brilliantly and print ads are amazing and they're going to work amazingly and mobile banner ads are absolutely terrible and someone needs to do something about that but there's there's an opportunity there but i think within influencer there's, there's so much enthusiasm to do it that I think every company wants to develop an influencer strategy. I get endless pitches from micro-influencer agencies. Um, and I think we've sort of jumped on it with such abandon that we're losing the sort of authenticity. Mm. So that particular tweet came from a sort of screen grab of a Financial Times article where basically some, you know, socialite type um, influencer, you know, and, and they normally fit into all the stereotypes you can imagine where they're probably blonde and they're probably quite privileged and they're probably quite thin. Um and, <laughs> um and she was saying basically that about five times a day a company will just send her an email saying can you promote this mm-hmm. um and pretty much by the looks of things on her feed every time that, uh, they ask her she'll do it so she she'll tweet things that you know a disembodied arm in this case that had a kind of watch uh, that she was then able to get paid to promote. And I just think, um, you know, at the start of this journey, you know, as someone who clearly has influence, as someone who is clearly a fashion follower and maybe a fashion leader, the idea of her uh, infrequently and authentically loving a particular product and then deciding to sort of post about it and then getting some sort of financial reward from the back end um, is is a quite a good idea. But the moment you basically become a sort of walking uh, billboard, the moment that I think almost immediately you lose all credit. Because if you actually, you know, start to realize that these people are promoting five things, that one week they're promoting um, a Chinese handset from uh, a big company and the next week they're promoting a Korean handset for, you know, phone handset from a different company, you start to realize that actually this person clearly doesn't really believe anything that they're saying. And then I think the market sort of drops out quite quickly. Um, So in short, I was saying this, this kind of notion of people inauthentically hawking things will probably come to an end and we'll probably find a more sort of sustainable thing, which will probably look a bit like it used to actually, where you'll just get sort of celebrity endorsements Mm. uh, and, you know, maybe maybe uh, sort of longer term, more authentic um, sort of uh, people who represent brands, Mm. I guess. Reminds me, I was at the uh, Ad Age uh, Brand Summit this week in Detroit and uh, one of the members of the audience uh, kind of raised the observation slash question about... You know, are we going back to a time where brands are basically are we are we going to go back to a time where brands are going to say, "Hi, we make hamburgers. We have a great hamburger. Hi, this is our car. It does this. Yeah, it does this in this amount of time, and it can do this. These are our clothes. They are water resistant. Basically, a uh, return to common sense and the utility of uh, of a company and a brand versus <laughs> whatever the hell is happening whatever. today. I think you're probably completely right. I think um, it wouldn't surprise me if this entire industry comes around to something that, for all intents and purposes, is actually demonstrably similar and identical to the 1950s and 60s. Um, I think it's going to take a while for us to get there. And I do think there will be key differences. I, mm. I don't think it's, you know, that we're going to be just doing TV ads and, and sort of print. Um, but I think it's going to look more like that than people realize. I think um, there's a great quote. I think it's from. Um, I can't actually remember the name of the guy now. Um, 
But he says no one ever gets famous for saying that things are broadly similar to how they used to be. Um, and um, he's called Ad Contrarian is, is his Twitter oh, handle. Bob, 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 yeah, Bob Hoffman. Yeah, sorry, Bob. Um, and I think he's completely right. Like our industry is obsessed with talking about the tiny, tiny things that are different. Mm-hmm. And actually, if we spent a lot of time focusing on things that are the same, uh, we'd realize that actually the power of brands is, is still as vital as it's ever been before, if not more vital. Yeah. Um, probably as people sort of need more meaning in their life because um, they're not getting it from different things, then actually the role of, sort of brands becomes more important. Similarly, um, I think we need to be aware in our industry that just because something can be done uh, doesn't mean that we should do it and that not everything that we measure is actually that important. I think uh, it's difficult to approach this sort of quickly. Um, but in short, our entire industry has become obsessed with sort of performance metrics, with things that we can measure precisely and quickly and things that we can change very quickly. Mm-hmm. And we tend to have this sort of endless massaging of the lower funnel. Um and I think that's completely wrong. I think our whole industry needs to sort of go the other way and actually focus on beautiful brand ads. Yeah. Well, I, I think just on that point, it wasn't something I was thinking about this morning uh, as we came into this, but uh, I think we should talk about it. Yeah. There's one metric we should all be obsessed with, not the micro minutia that we seem to be obsessed with, as you say, uh, overly massaging the lower funnel. Growth. It's, yeah, absolutely. it's growth. At absolutely. the end of the day, is your brand growing? Yeah, absolutely. Or is it not growing? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're either growing or dying. Yeah. Those are your two options. Absolutely, absolutely. And growth in lots of ways. Maybe growth is in your ability to maintain a profit because you're charging a premium. Mm. Um, and the proxies for growth that I think are important are often things that we neglect. So it is actually things like net promoter score. Um, it is the, the brand's ability to charge a premium. Uh, obviously, will be things like sales. Instead, we tend to sort of focus on the things that are relevant. So... It kind of it endlessly confuses me how people are obsessed with um, how many retweets things get. You know, like if a brand, all they care about is retweets or engagement, then just stick a picture of a baby on their feed. You know, they'll or get... a puppy. <laughs> or a puppy. Puppies are even better. Um, and well, then, well, yeah, yeah I, mean, I want to I I probe okay. that a little bit. Because again, yeah. one of your great tweets that I read, again, just in the last four days, you really have to follow <laughs> Tom, uh, which, which I dubbed the brand consumer disconnect. You wrote... Uh, quote, welcome to the modern age where things that matter massively to companies <laughs> are of no meaning to people who are just living their lives. Yes. I think, um, <laughs> I mean, I go to a lot of conferences and I see all these uh, these, these topics that we talk about. Mm. And to a company, whether or not you buy something uh, on the app or on the mobile web or on the desktop internet or in real life, to a company that is of huge significance, like it's going to completely change who they reward and, and how they do things. To a normal person, they don't care. You know, like you're just buying stuff. Like all of these places are just new ways to sort of buy stuff. But your primary thing is buying stuff. Um, so the TV industry, whether or not you stream TV or whether uh, it's watched through uh, broadcast TV, is of like cataclysmically vast importance. To a normal person, they don't care. Like I. I you know, I work for a media agency and, and I know lots and lots of stuff about technology. I still have absolutely no idea when I'm streaming TV, uh, when I'm broadcast, when I'm watching broadcast TV. I still don't know really what, what the difference is and what it means. I mean, as far as I can see, one is the information is coming to me through electromagnetic radiation and the other one is through uh, bits of data over the Internet. But it doesn't in any way sort of affect my experience, really. That's pretty much more than uh, 99% of the world knows. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing well. But, it may, you know, you, I'm sure to the elevator business, I'm sure they spend a lot of time thinking whether you're an Otis elevator or 
you know, some German company called Schneider Schindler. or something. Schindler. Schindler. Is it Schindler? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I'm an oldest guy. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> well, it would be as absurd as this being like that. It would be as absurd as this being like, you know, Otis is really sort of eating up the vertical transportation market. Nobody cares. Like, nobody cares if they have 3G or LTE or Wi-Fi data. It's just information on their phone. Did you really just dub that the vertical transportation <laughs> industry? I'm going to write a book on it, I think. <laughs> that is epic. All right, good. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull uh, one, maybe one or two more that I loved here. Yeah. Uh, this one I loved um, about what this is. This is a quote from you about once a day for the heck of it. I click on a banner <laughs> ad. When I do so, fifty percent of the time it's clear nobody thought to plan for that scenario. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about banner ads, the Nickelback of all media, and uh, and customer journeys. Because I actually yeah. I think what you hit upon in this tweet yeah. uh, was very smart. Because I think there is a yeah. a lot of companies sort of rush to get that banner ad out, but they're really not thinking about the journey after the click. Yeah, I mean I could talk about this for quite a long time, um, and I probably shouldn't. Uh, Just try. I remember the first. So I've spent virtually all of my life working in creative agencies um, and working on great brands. Um, started out at TBWA actually, um, but I remember about two thousand and three, uh, we saw banner ads on a media plan, mm. and we didn't really know what that was. Um, so we had we a bit of it was a, a plane. With a banner <laughs> yeah, on. that would have been way more fun. Um, and uh, we sort of spoke to the media agency, and we're like, "We got these banner ads," and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we don't really know what they are either." But other people generally are just getting a print ad um, and sort of making it a bit smaller. And we're like, "Oh, that's great." Um, and at that time, sort of production was supposed to be about ten percent of media spend. It's probably still quite like that now. Um, and this buy was like fifty thousand pounds or something. So we're like, you know, crap. We've got like five thousand pounds to spend on on sort of production. So you know, we gave it to some sort of junior creative, and he just made the print ad smaller. And then we supplied it. And then someone said, uh, "Guys, like, what happens when you click on it?" And we'd never thought about this before because there'd never actually been any form of advertising where you could do anything about it. So we just said, "Oh well, let's just go to the homepage." Um, and then they're like, have you got a homepage? And then we realized that actually we did have a homepage, so we're fine. Um, so that, I think, was 2003. And in the last 14 years, I don't think we've ever really sort of gone beyond that discussion. Um, the entire world of sort of internet-based advertising has effectively been taken um, without anyone sort of really thinking about it. And we've taken the units of the past and we've made them smaller. And if there's no sound, we take the sound off. And if you're only allowed to have 10 minutes, uh, 10 seconds of video, then we take the 15 and then sort of edit it down. At no point has anyone actually thought, we have this amazing thing here. We have a phone. This phone knows where you are in the mm -hmm. world. This phone knows what the temperature is. The phone knows if it's raining. The phone knows where you need to be in two hours. The phone has gyroscopic sensors that mm -hmm. mean as you turn the phone, things can happen. And if we were actually to take the starting point as the device, um, we would make incredible ads. Um, if we took the starting point of TV ads as as being a beautiful screen that's massive, that has sound, that people are probably watching, uh, we might make ads that are five seconds long. Uh, we might make ads that serve sequentially. So over a period of time, you sort of build the story. We might make ads that actually you can interact with on TV. We might make ads that are sort of dynamically inserted based on the weather or based on the stock market behavior. We would make like the best ever TV ads we'd ever seen. But instead, we, we sort of get caught up, I think, in this sort of muscle memory of the past, where generally speaking, the media in our life becomes smaller and generally speaking, it becomes slightly more interruptive. And I just think it's a, a, an absolute shame. Uh, and even the customer journey, like because because most digital media has always been cheap, 
generally speaking as agencies we haven't sort of put the world's best thinkers on it and we haven't sort of really thought what can we do with this mm. we tend to be quite sort of re- reactive about it right um and, and you know and as a result no career we, we've sort of entered this sort of spiral of decline i guess where because the media is cheap we don't have much money to spend on production because of that we don't really have time to think because of that we make ads which largely mm-hmm. aren't very good and then because of that we have a culture where no no creative director is kind of eagerly waiting the next banner ad brief you know hence ad blocker yeah i mean absolutely, literally absolutely. the inspiration behind ad blocker and it's been this disastrous kind of downward spiral where because ads are now blocked then the companies that do get your attention feel this need to sort of like shout even louder um because of that you get all these kind of sneaky things where you have to turn off ad blockers i mean mm-hmm. we've kind of entered this like um you know there, there should be a sort of cultural con- contract almost where people realize that you know the bus stop looks beautiful because JC Deco have have created this space. Um, the TV show is amazing and it's free because there are these great ads. But as part of that kind of um, cultural contact uh, contract, it would be good if the if advertisers and publishers realised their role within that value exchange. And things like Vogue or W Magazine, they have beautiful, beautiful print ads mm-hmm. that if you took them out, people would complain. So it'd be interesting to think what what's what, how does that social contract look on the internet? Mm-hmm. How can people kind of respect? Really, um, sort of give information that's beautiful and, and that feels premium at the right time. Yeah, well, I like what you're saying because I think uh, the observation is that we are uh, being reactive. Yeah, we're letting the parameter dictate absolutely uh, the execution versus no. Look at the opportunity. Absolutely, we have sort of lifting it out of our business again. I like uh, again. Uh, this. This is just one 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 last piece. I think we'll talk about before we talk about your journey. But yeah, I, I love the way you framed up business. Three types of businesses. I thought this was very <laughs> prescient. You said you're either a startup, a turnaround. Or you may be a family-run <laughs> brewing company from the 1400s that's probably doing just fine. Those are three types of business. And I think you're yeah. 100% right. You're either a startup yeah. or a turnaround yeah. or a 1400-year-old brewer that's doing just fine. <laughs> I mean, is that how you are you seeing business I today? Mean, that was me being sort of quite cheeky um, in that there are so many people on big platforms making very bold proclamations. I can't speak today. But whatever that word is. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's more nuance, you know, like if you're a climate change scientist, um, in order to get read, you probably have to put out uh, a piece saying that climate change is far worse than we ever thought and we're all going to die within 10 days. Or you have to put out a piece saying climate change doesn't exist, we're all totally fine. To actually put out a headline, which is climate change is kind of complicated and we're not entirely sure what's going on, but there are some things that lead me to think that there might be quite a small change. No one's going to read that piece. And I think no, it's like the <laughs> TMZification yeah. of even science. No, like, absolutely. Everything must be clickbait. So I think, I think extremely wise people that have got an enormous amount of respect for have said things like you're either a startup or a turnaround uh and everyone including me will hear that and think this is amazing what a great soundbite um love this it's so true and then if you actually think about it for about five minutes you realize that that's not really true at all i mean we spend a lot of our life looking at industries that are going through significant change and we have an amazing role to play in helping companies that are going through incredible change. But we also need to be mindful that actually there are some companies that are just doing fine. Like if, if you're um, if you're in the dog food business, um, you know, people are clearly going to start buying dog food online. But your need to build a brand, your need to sort of tell people that the the soft kibble is a delightful way to keep your dog's hair shiny. Uh, that's every bit as true today as it has been before. Mm. Um, so I think we, we just need to have a sort of more nuanced debate where we need to be aware of the fact that 
you know, if you if you sit in a a sort of a town square in in Frankfurt and you you drink beer, you are going to be surrounded by sort of local ham manufacturers that have been around since the sort of twelve hundreds. There will be a sort of medieval tower. Um, and you're not going to have your sort of beard delivered to you by a drone and it's not going to be in a 3D printed glass. So I think it's 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 useful for us to just be aware of the fact that um, change is really, really important, but change uh, isn't everywhere. And it's better to sort of not have this extremely um, sort of alarmist approach where we think that everything has to be different now. Well, I, I read a very funny word. I think I, I, I'm going to attribute it to you. You can tell me otherwise. <laughs> but you refer to something as dumbovation. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. In the world of innovation, you found dumbovation. Well, I think, I, mean, I don't know if you want me to talk about this much, but I think uh, we're in an environment where a lot of innovation is actually kind of peacocking, um, either because people want to get famous or because people need to show to the Wall Street that they're trying. And I just think you get endless kind of ideas that are, if you think about quadrant, there's sort of everything from sort of easy to hard along one axis and important to, um, you know, unimportant on the other. And I think most innovation tends to be in the sort of easy but not important thing. <laughs> um, and actually, it would be amazing if as an industry we could start approaching the unbelievably big challenges mm. that are of like existential importance. Um, but often we don't tend to sort of do that because it's a bit scary. Yeah. Well, I think. Um... The tyranny of dumbovation is upon <laughs> us, which is good. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your journey. I yes. mean, how uh, you know, how did you how did you get into all of this? I'm not sure. Um, how long do you have? I see. I entered advertising. It's a great story. I don't know if I should do it or not because it reflects badly on me. Um, I started working for a guy called Ellis Watson at Cellador International many, many years ago, about the year 2000, and uh, I was just like a sort of office helper, a bit lost in life. Uh, and on the end day of my sort of contract there, because it was just temporary work, he said, uh, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not sure. I think I might be a management consultant. And he said, no, I think you'd be great at advertising. Um, so I applied. I applied to the only, there were only ch like one grad scheme left that year, and that was TBWA. So I applied to TBWA's grade, grad scheme. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be saying this. Um, and that was that. And then I got a phone call about uh, four months later, very cold day. I remember it vividly saying, where are you? It's the receptionist at TBWA. Uh, and I said, um, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, uh, I'm not there. And they're like, yeah, we know. And I'm, and I said, uh, well, the interviews are next week. And they're like, no, they're today. And I was like, I'm pretty sure the interviews are next week. And the receptionist said, well, 199 people um, appear to think they're today and they're in our foyer. And one person, and that's you, isn't. So I said, should I come or not? And they said, yeah, come along. So I kind of jumped. What an incredibly sort of arrogant and awful thing for me to think. Uh, so I jumped in a taxi, got to the reception area and uh, did some sort of first round interviews. And then they said, you know, can you do your presentation now? And I said, what? And they said, can you talk about something you're passionate about? And everyone had done these like elaborate kind of PowerPoint presentations and, and uh, they had all these props and stuff. <laughs> I didn't have anything at all. I just had a banana in my pocket. So I thought, shit, like, um, I love bananas. Uh, so I'm going to do a, a sort of ad hoc presentation all about bananas. And I talked about how passionate bananas, how it was about bananas and how, like, the packaging was amazing, sort of natural, organic, single-serve packaging. They were energy bar. 
Um, they were sort of like a protein shake all in one. And then I took a bite out of the banana, dropped the skin on the floor and then slipped up on it deliberately. And I said, there's a joke in every pack. Um, and I'm not a particularly sort of funny or <laughs> interesting person. So, but somehow all this stuff just sort of came to me on the spot. Uh, and they loved it. So I got through to the very final round. Uh, and then I didn't make the, the actual grad scheme in the end. I, I got to the final stage uh, with Jonathan Mildenhall. And they just said that they weren't really sure that I was right. So I ended up working on like a grad scheme for GlaxoSmithKline for about three years, getting paid quite nicely to basically do field sales. And after about three years, I, was, I had a really nice sports car. Uh, and I'd figured out how to sort of game the system. So I was only doing about five hours work a week. Um, and I just thought, screw this. Like, I want to work. You were Tim Ferriss of the UK. <laughs> yeah. First of all, you dropped the mic with a banana. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you're the Tim Ferriss of uh, the UK. Please carry on. <laughs> I emailed Jonathan Mildenhall and I said, uh, Jonathan, I don't know if you remember me, uh, but I made it to the last round of the grad intake scheme and I failed. Um, I've learned a lot. I now earn a fortune and I don't work that hard and I want to do the opposite. <laughs> And he emailed me straight away and said, come down and visit our offices. So I, can't I, I never met you before. I no, no. Yeah. So this was I, didn't, I didn't even know you were a TBWA person. <laughs> this is like 2003. So that was my route in. So I worked for TBWA. I was the world's worst account manager because um, I, I kind of came in at a surprisingly high level, uh, had no idea what I was doing. And then quite rightly, I was kind of, I was asked to leave. I would be a, a nice way of putting it in a very cordial way. But I, I was just absolutely hopeless. Um, so then I spent many, many years trying to avoid being an account manager. Uh, so I worked uh, for Lowe, doing amazing things with Nokia. We would just get the best briefs mm. ever. And I basically did sort of... Were you a planner then? Or I was kind you... of just like a, like an odd helper. Like every, every time they had something, <laughs> every time they had something that no one knew how to do, they'd sort of give it mm. to me and I'd sort of figure it out. So hopefully I'm not breaking any NDAs here. Mm. But my first challenge was... Um, what actually is is very, very early influencer marketing. Uh, so it was about 2005, uh, and Nokia made this device called the Nokia N93, and it mm. took brilliant, brilliant videos. Um, and until this point, video recorders were sort of large and bulky, you know, camcorders. And therefore, the only thing that people ever videoed would be weddings. Um, and obviously, it would be done sort of quite properly. And the idea behind this device was that you could spontaneously film things around you. Um, so we had to develop this entire influencer campaign, which no one really had sort of known about before. RGA uh, and and myself worked closely on this, where we established people who were notable. So Gary Oldman was chosen to be the, the main sort of spearhead of the campaign. He was in the TV ad, and then I had to work with him to make a, a spontaneous film. Um, and then I had to sort of recruit special people um, who had sort of notable followings uh, to make sort of films after that. So I chose people like Galen Yeo, who was the cinematographer for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm. But I, it was the dream job where I basically just flew around the world making films with people. Um, so after that, I just got a reputation as just being someone that was quite useful at mm. things that no one really knew how to do. Um, I'd have to do things like IP contracts. Like I'd just go to the internet and just download a sort of rights contract um, and just sort of figure it out. Uh, so it was quite sort of scrappy. Um, and so, by the way, was there anything in your university experience that, or anything in your life that kind of, <laughs> I don't know, would uh, show that you were kind of a, a fixer or at least a fearless fixer? I, you, I, think, um, I think maybe a lot of these things I think are attitudes, actually. Um, I think somehow my parents have installed, instilled within me the sense that, one, don't take things too seriously. 
Um, two, you'll probably know that important. And three, just like have a go at stuff mm. and just sort of figure it out. So I, I tend, you know, I, I don't know whether you'd call it entrepreneurial, but I think there's a bit of a sort of optimistic sort of can-do attitude, I guess. Um, but I'm not going to sort of dwell on my career for mm. too long. But I essentially sort of just carried on in, in sort of interesting jobs that kind of propelled me upwards a bit. So, mm. so that job at, at Lowe sort of led to a business development role, mm. a kind of global business development role working for Lowe. Mm. Uh, then I got moved across to Los Angeles to work for Huge, mm. um, which was interesting. Uh, and then I left there to work for the IPG Media Lab, mm. uh, which was an incredible sort of place. Mm. Um, all about new technology and new behaviors mm. and how brands can kind and, of... And, and had you been kind of a, I mean, working on, on Nokia, I mean, yeah. have you been like a kind of a tech person, would you say? I or? think um, what I think might be quite lucky about me is that I'm curious enough about technology to understand the broad principles. Mm-hmm. I understand the sort of theory of how it works. But, but did you build radios as a no, kid? No, no, I was nothing like that clever. Um, I would, uh, I sold them. I would <laughs> had a job in a retailer sort of explaining what vacuum cleaners people should buy. Um, I think I've got a lot of curiosity about mm. technology, but what I find most interesting is sort of what technology means for people. So mm. it sounds quite kind of philosophical, but actually what's amazing about the iPhone is not, what's in it but what it allows to happen mm-hmm. so i think about something like uber like like uber is entirely made possible because of gps mm. um but no one ever saw the day that gps worked with the app store and thought we need to kind of create a car mm. company uh, like a mobility company from it mm. so i think i find that interesting so I'm, I'm fascinated by people and interested in technology and most of my job is You're a dot that connector i mean that, that's yeah, what maybe. steve jobs said was one of the secrets yeah. you know see the dots and connect them yeah i think i think something like that yeah well, amazing and really, really interesting. I, I'm going to read one thing. Yeah. Uh, one, 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 what I dubbed as parting wisdom. You can tell me because this is the part of the show where you give you give someone one piece of advice. Okay. I'm going to read this. You tell me if you can top this. Your parting wisdom. This yeah. is what you wrote. Disrupt or be disrupted. Unless you work in one of the many sectors that really won't change that much, <laughs> in which case, slowly adapt a bit. <laughs> I don't know, Tom. I don't know if you could top that, but uh, is, there, is, is there one piece of, you know, it's Friday today. Is there one piece of advice you'd give to someone out there uh, for what they should do Monday? Um, to, to achieve a dream? Yeah, to yeah. Get the, to get, a, you know, the job they always wanted, to build the thing they wanted to do, to connect the dot? What's... It's hard to bring it down to one thing, but for me, um, I mean, I'm trying to sort of summarize everything almost that we've discussed today to sort of keep in that theme. For me, it's about uh, focus. You know, um, we're in a very sort of complicated time and there's so much stuff that can be done. And I think sometimes in our industry, we tend to get quite defensive and we feel like we need to show that we're working hard. So I sit on, um, you know, as part of my role in a media agency, you see a lot of media plans and they're incredibly complicated. Um, And actually, I think often in life, we're afraid to sort of reduce down. We're afraid to make things seem really simple. Uh, we like to um, show that we've worked hard by the sort of uh, the process that we followed. Um, and I think it's of vital importance for everyone every day to just be ruthlessly focused on one thing um, and to make that happen. Mm. And I think especially in America, I mean, I'm not going to sort of moan here, but um, I don't know whether it's the kind of Lutheran sort of beginnings of, 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 of sort of America today or, or this sort of sense of like puritanism, but people have to sort of show that they're working hard. There's this need to sort of feel like you're replying to emails straight away. There's this need to sort of copy people in. There's this need to sort of have meetings which last quite a long time because it's rude to sort of have a meeting that doesn't last an hour if people have traveled a long way. 
Um, and I'd love us to just get, um, maybe it's almost arrogance or just ballsiness or confidence to just say no to lots of things. I mean, it's very sort of Apple-esque, I guess. Say no to lots of things, focus on the one thing that matters. Um, so every day, like who cares how much work it takes to get to that point, but just really, really focus on the sort of value that you're trying to bring. Excellent. All right, Tom, I can't thank you enough. This is great to chat with you. And uh, I really encourage uh, people out there who are listening to uh, to follow you because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of this and more. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. All right, man. Thanks so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashyatny.tumblr.com.